there's a, there's a truth about life that we all come to terms with, especially the older we get, that pain is unavoidable. We may try to cushion ourselves against difficult things, but the older we get, the more we just have to come to terms with it. Nobody's exempt. No matter uh, how smart you are, how good you think you are, no matter how wealthy you may be, nobody can really cushion themselves against the reality of struggle, of difficulty, of disappointment, of pain. Now, there's a a related truth that we also come to terms with, I hope, that even though pain is so very painful, it's also something that develops us into who we are. Very few of us would probably say, I came to to become the kind of person I am through the easy times in life. No, we develop our character, we forge our faith so often when things are difficult, and we know it to be true. So there's this interesting reality that we find ourselves in, that on one hand, none of us, if pain were voluntary, none of us would volunteer. Nobody would choose to go through suffering if we didn't have to. Of course, life doesn't give us that option, right? But at the same time, when we do endure painful things, we come to find that that's how we're made. No pain, no gain, we used to say. Maybe you grew up as an athlete uh, hearing that from a coach. Uh, And it's really true. No pain, no gain. Without struggle, we have very little perspective on life. Without struggle, we have very little character development. And without struggle, we, we have very little faith development. Very little exercise of faith unless we go through difficult things. Now, that's why your Bible, more than any other book in the world, talks about the issue of pain, the the, the reality of suffering, and the Bible deals with it in ways that, that, frankly, surprise us. Almost every page of your Bible deals with this reality of life. And, and we're going to look at one example this morning, Psalm 31, but I want to encourage you, no matter where you turn in your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, when we encounter the reality of pain and suffering and struggle and anxiety and fear and difficulty, the Bible never gives us pat answers for these things. Never in your Bible will you find God trying to comfort someone by saying, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Now, that may be the cliche that we prefer to use because it helps us to navigate things, but God never says that. The Bible never gives us pat answers. In fact, the Scripture, very very seldom does the Scripture try to explain the why behind suffering. There are some places. But more often than not, the Scripture simply shows us how to walk through it, how to trust God in the midst of it. And we get a perfect example of this today in Psalm 31 from the mouth, from the pen of King David. Um, David, y'all, David wrote about trouble more than anyone else in the Bible, maybe more than anyone else who's ever lived. We might be surprised to find when we walk through the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms, a great many of them are about struggles and difficulties and trusting God in the midst of hard things. And David wrote a lot of those. Now, this is, for me, always a... Uh, a surprising thing that if anybody would go through hard times, surely not the king of Israel. When we read about David, we're reading about a favored person, one of the most famous uh, biblical persons uh, that, that uh, in the world. I mean, David is acknowledged worldwide, even by religions that don't adopt Christianity uh, and our truth, that, that David is still someone held in high esteem. And surely if people were going to struggle, it wouldn't be a person like this. 
the king of Israel, a person of massive wealth, a person who commanded the military. He, he, if anybody would have had a charmed life, it would have been David. And yet David was always in trouble. I mean, almost from the beginning of his life, he found himself in difficult situations. Uh, he was on the run. Even as, as king, he was on the run. He was hunted. He was, uh, he was the target of assassination on multiple occasions. He was burdened with his own sin and the consequences of his own sin. He was not a perfect man by far. But the point is that few people can speak to the issue of, of suffering quite like David can. David has a perspective that we need to heed here. And so as we, if we look at Psalm 31... Uh, these are not the words. These are not theoretical words. Here's what I would do if I find myself in a difficult situation. No, this is David writing from a place of trial. In fact, we don't really know in Psalm 31 what the specific problem was because he had so many problems. He's not specific about what the issue is, so it could have been any number of things here. He was a man well acquainted with grief. And look how he deals with it. Look at Psalm 31, verse 1. He says, In you, O Lord... I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now, right away, we see where David's faith lies, where his faith rests. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Now, that's, that's a very churchy Bible kind of phrase right there. We, shouldn't, we see that elsewhere in the Bible. It's not unique to David. But I want you to consider something I just mentioned. David, David was a man of tremendous resources. David was a man, he was the wealthiest man in the world in his time. He was the exalted king of Israel. He had amazing human power and potential at his fingertips at all times. He had resources. And yet in the midst of all his resources, when his temptation might be to reach out for something else, something merely horizontal, instead, no, he says, my hope is vertical. In his despair, he says, in you, O Lord, in you alone. I have taken refuge. And y'all, that's something, first off, right off the bat, that we, I think we need to hear and see. Because our temptation, I know this is true for me, our temptation when things in life turn sour, when difficult times arise, our temptation is to look for resources. Who can I lean on? Who can I turn to? Who can I call? Can I afford this? How can I get out of this? Right? Those are the first thoughts that come to my mind. But the truth is, there are no resources in our midst that can do for us what God is meant to do. There are going to be times in your life, you've probably already experienced this, where money can't buy you out of a problem. There are times in your life where nobody else can bear the pain for you. It's yours to bear. No one else can make this decision for you. It's yours to decide. And we find ourselves at times beyond our resources. And I want to tell you guys that that is, a, that is a gift of God. Seems strange to say it, but God will graciously push you beyond your resources so that you will learn to trust in him alone. God will graciously push you beyond your resources if it means learning to say, like David, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. That, that, I'm not saying it's wrong to lean on other people, to seek counsel, to seek comfort, to set money aside for a rainy day. That's not wrong. But y'all, the truth is that there's no, no human being can be your true refuge, no matter how much they love you. No amount of money can be your security. And as Christians, we have this unique privilege 
that we don't have to reach out for uh, the, the temporary and earthly things to be resources for us in our pain, that we actually have the great resource. We have a heavenly Father who is with us in the midst of our suffering. We can call upon God and find our, our rescue in him. And David tells us here that it's more than just divine assistance. It's more than just God kind of giving a pat on the back, offering a cliche to help us get through the day. Look at what David says at the end of verse 1. He says, In your righteousness, deliver me. In your righteousness, deliver me. Um, uh, Martin Luther is a, is a name you need to know, a man who lived five, six hundred years ago now. Martin Luther was a German monk uh, who was terrified at the thought of the righteousness of God. It was, it was a despairing thought to him that God was righteous because Martin Luther knew that he was unrighteous. He was a sinner. And so it, it, he couldn't conceive of God being righteous and treating Martin Luther in any kind of gracious way. He could only condemn me, Luther thought, because I'm a sinner and he's perfect. Well, one day, Martin Luther was commissioned to teach through the Psalms at the University of Wittenberg. And so he began to teach through the Psalms, and he came to this verse in his teaching, Psalm 31.1. And he could not make sense of it. In your righteousness, deliver me? How could God's righteousness deliver? How could it save? In his mind, it could only condemn. And that is the moment when Martin Luther's eyes were opened to the truth of the Scripture, something he had missed all along that finally came home to his heart, that in Jesus Christ, we have the righteousness of God given to us as a gift, not to condemn us in our sin, but to save us by grace. He had never considered this reality before. He had read the scriptures. He was familiar with the book of Romans, but it had never come to life in his heart before. And only then, only then, could Luther write these words, very famous words. Listen to what he said. He said, I finally grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When God delivers us from earthly troubles, it's not simply out of pity. It's out of his righteousness. It's out of his eternal goodness, his perfect character. And we don't have to be afraid of that part of who God is. The fact that we are sinners does not deny us access to God because in his righteousness he has delivered us by the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. How does that help you when you're struggling? Well, consider this. How how much more natural would it be for us to trust God in temporary struggles when in his righteousness he has delivered you eternally? What Martin Luther finally understood, what I hope that we will understand is this, that God saves us in his goodness. Therefore, we can trust him in the everyday things. David understood that only in shadows. We have resources, believe it or not, that even David didn't have because we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. He has delivered us in his righteousness. We can trust him. See what David says in verse 2? He says, incline your ear to me. 
Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Uh, When David says, incline your ear to me, the picture we're supposed to get is of a man on his deathbed. So weak, so frail, that you would have to put your ear directly to his lips to make out what he's saying. He cannot project. He's got no life in him, just enough breath to make out a whisper. And that's the posture of David in this psalm. Now, again, David was a man of tremendous wealth and strength. Uh, he, he, He knew what it was like to fight off lions and bears, to protect sheep. I mean, David was a man's man in every conceivable way. And yet when he comes to God in prayer in the midst of his struggle, David calls out as a totally helpless person. God, you're going to have to put your ear directly on my lips in order to hear my faint cry. David needs rescue. David needs a rock of strength. Now, this is something I know for some of us we need to consider because we think of weakness as a terrible thing. We think of weakness as something that has no virtue associated with it at all. You can't admit weakness. You can't show weakness. Maybe you were raised in in that way of thinking. If you show weakness, they're going to walk all over you. But y'all, this is our position before God all the time, but especially when we're struggling We sing it. We sing it with our kids. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You know, that's not just a song for kids. That's every single person in need of God. We're weak. We need his strength. The apostle Paul came to this conclusion. Paul, again, who was a a man of tremendous achievement, a man that we admire and look up to. He wrote half the New Testament. And yet the apostle Paul, when he considered his own weakness and struggle his own temptations, his own propensities to sin and the things that he had faced in his life, he made the statement, he said, I, will, I would much rather boast, brag about my weaknesses. What a strange thing to say. But he said, because only when I am weak, then am I strong. Only at Paul's weakest place was he then fully dependent upon the strength and the power and the glory of God, and that provided for him a strength beyond himself. It was in his weakness that he became strong because the strength was not his own. Um, So you may be the kind of person that you you will not admit a need if your life depended on it. I know some of us are that way, and again, maybe you were raised that way. You will not admit weakness. You will not admit a need no matter what. Maybe you don't want to be a burden to other people. Maybe there's a nobility in that somewhere, but whatever it is, it's problematic. And here's where it gets really bad. I've heard people say this. I don't pray about myself. I don't ask God for things for me because God's got enough stuff to worry about besides me. God's got bigger fish to fry in this world than my problems. Maybe you've thought that in your mind before. But y'all, if that's our mentality, if we won't even come to God with our needs and our weaknesses, then we're forfeiting one of the greatest graces he's given to us, which is his strength and his mercy and his comfort for every need, for every need. We're not a bother to him. We're not an intrusion upon God. He loves to know what we need. Peter said it, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Another old song says it like this, Jesus knows our every weakness, so take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to him. If you can't admit your need before God, then you're forfeiting such grace. 
He wants it. It's his to take, and it's the strength of God to give. And y'all, there's a promise associated with this. Not just that God is there for us to incline his ear to us, to be our rock and our refuge in the midst of our weakness, but look at the end of verse 3, the promise. David says, For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. This is also reflected in that famous Psalm 23, that God guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his glory, for his glory. I want y'all to notice that David wasn't asking for God's help because he thought he deserved it. He wasn't saying, God, I'm the king of Israel. I'm your man. I've, I've devoted so much of my life to you. Right? Pay me back. He didn't deserve it. He also wasn't asking for God's pity, like a little dog with its tail between its legs. Oh, God, just get me out of this. I can't handle it. What David was declaring, even in the midst of his own pain, he was declaring God's glory in the midst of his trouble. Um, that, that's always strange to me. Maybe it's strange to you. Why would David be fixated if, if, if all of the problems seem to be coming in his direction at him, why would he be turning his attention back outward to God? Why would he be asking for God's glory in his leadership and his guidance of David's life? Um, why would God be concerned with his own glory in the first place? You and I know this as human beings. If you glorify yourself, then you're, you're sinning, right? God doesn't want us to glorify ourselves. If you glorify yourself, people don't want to hang around you. People don't like being around people like that, right? They, they, they don't want an arrogant, uh, self-centered kind of person. Nobody likes to have a friend like that. So how can God glorify himself? Isn't, isn't that self-serving? Isn't that arrogant on his part? We all, the, the glory of God is the highest good there is. God's glory is the highest good in the universe. This is not God fixating on himself because he's self-centered. This is God declaring the highest good for humanity and for all his creation. His glory is the single greatest thing in existence. And so when we say, when we pray like David, God, lead me for your name's sake, for your glory... We're asking for something more than just easier circumstances. That may feel like what I want, what I need in the midst of my pain. God, just take the pain away. Just make my life easier. Just give me comfort. That's fair. But David shows us a better way. God, you be glorified in how you lead me and how you rescue me and how you deliver me. What we're asking is, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of problems, Father, you be glorified. The ultimate good, God, would you let the ultimate good come out of this in my life? Y'all think about it. When, when weak people turn to God for strength, God is glorified. The highest good is accomplished. When sinners come to God for grace and forgiveness, God is glorified. The highest good is accomplished. Your life and mine, in the temporary things that we experience, we feel those things, they're real, but they're not ultimate. They don't tell the full story. The full story is, and God will receive honor, praise, and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the full story. And every single moment, even the painful moments, contribute to that ultimate glory that we'll experience with him in eternity. That's how we can pray with a different perspective. See, difficult times, at least for me, difficult times have a way of turning me inward. 
I turn inward. I, I get full of self-interest and self-pity and self-preservation. And that's totally natural. You're probably that way too. Tough times have a way of turning us in. And yet what we see in David is in the midst of uh, difficulty to treasure God is to be turned out, to be turned up, upward, not inward. Because we see a different plane of reality. We are, we are brought into a different uh, um, uh, realm where we understand that our pain doesn't get the final word, that God can be glorified even in this. Um, there's, a, there's a great example of this at the end of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there, but at the end of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews was a book. It's a New Testament book. It was written to the church undergoing tremendous persecution, and much of the book of Hebrews is an encouragement for them to hold fast the confession of their hope to keep their faith in the midst of struggle because they were being pushed up against the wall by their surrounding culture. They were really suffering for being Christians. And so the book of Hebrews is an exhortation to them, an encouragement to them in the midst of it all. And I want to show you, this is how the book ends. The last thing the author of Hebrews says by way of exhortation to the church, people who are really feeling a lot of pain for their faith, this is what it says, Hebrews 13, verse 20. He says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord. May God equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What Hebrews does not say at the end is, y'all hunker down, and hopefully things will get better. Keep praying, keep your fingers crossed. Who knows? Right? That may be how life feels a lot of the time. But no, what we see here, the God of peace who has the power to raise the dead. He has raised the great shepherd of the sheep back to life. And that shepherd leads us and he equips us and he strengthens us. Therefore, there is nothing we come up against in this life that is beyond him. Is it beyond us? Yes. But it's not beyond the great shepherd who leads his sheep. Therefore, we can be equipped for all his goodwill and we can give him all glory for it forever and ever. Amen. Right. Y'all, is, is that a natural perspective? Do we come to that naturally? No one ever would. We would never come to these conclusions in our own natural mind in our, or, or just based on our own circumstances because we know the truth. When, when we experience pain, it's painful. Isn't that profound? Pain is painful. It's real. It's not imaginary. Some religions treat it like it's an illusion. It's all in your mind. It's not real. No, it is. Bad things are bad. We don't have to pretend like secretly there's, there's always good even in the bad. Some bad things are just bad. But none of those things can destroy us. None of those things get the final word. In fact, those things will actually make us. Read 1 Peter chapter 1. That our faith is tested and refined as though by fire to result in the praise of God's glory even when we suffer. That's why the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, that even though the outer man is decaying, the outer person's falling apart, that's life, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, Paul said, is storing up for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is not a natural conclusion. That only comes to us by faith. 
that there is a renewal of our spirit that is building up for us an eternal weight of glory that cannot be compared, that no amount of suffering can compare to. Um, only, only by trusting God do we ever come to that conclusion. That's why Paul says, or that's why David says, ultimately, in your righteousness, deliver me, and by your grace, I'm saved. Um, If suffering turns us to Jesus, if suffering turns us to Jesus, um, we gain perspective. I talked about that earlier. If we never suffered, we'd have no perspective. We wouldn't know the difference between joy and sorrow, good and bad. Um, when we turn to Jesus, we get perspective. Um, and we see that as the, as the, or at least our little section concludes. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 31. David says, you'll, you'll pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Um, evil can't win. And again, we, we look at the world, we look at, at, at the sick and sorry world so often that we find ourselves in. We read the news, you read the news. Um, no, we don't, we don't read the news anymore. You watch the news, I guess. Is that how we do it? We see the world, we think, I mean, there, how, how can any good come out of this? And yet David is very clear. You will pull me out of the net which they have laid for me. The schemes of man, no matter how evil or corrupt they may become, the Lord will triumph. Both now and forevermore, the Lord will triumph. That's why in Psalm 118, it says, the Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now that's perspective. What can happen to me in this life that the Lord will not triumph over? Now, where does confidence like that come from? It comes from verse 5. Last verse we're going to look at. Verse 5, David says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. That phrase, into your hand I commit my spirit, it's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's an anchor kind of phrase. It anchors us in deep trust and dependence upon God. In fact, uh, Jewish children would pray that phrase as they went to bed each night before they went to sleep. Lord, into your hand I commit my spirit. Uh, before I go to sleep, when I'm at my most vulnerable as I sleep, God, I trust you. I commit the most important part of me to you. Uh, we, we, some of us maybe still pray that. As I lay me down to sleep, um, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Same idea. But where have we heard this before? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Are you familiar with that phrase? If you are, it's probably not because of David here in Psalm 31. It's probably elsewhere from Luke chapter 23. Now, if you're real quick, you can turn to Luke 23, but I'm gonna, it's only a few verses. In Luke 23, Luke gives us um, a picture of what the final moments of Jesus' life were like as he lay dying on the cross. And I want to show you what happens here. Luke 23, verse 44. Luke says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What's happening in this scenario? At the cross, at the cross, the land was covered for three hours in a thick darkness. Uh, people debate what that meant. It had to mean something. I think it simply means that God's judgment for sin was taking place there at the cross, and darkness covered the land. Jesus was taking on the righteous wrath of God for sin. He was doing that for us, and therefore the sun was obscured. 
Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now that was a declaration from top to bottom in the temple. The curtain is ripped. That was a declaration of God that our sins had been atoned for, that the light could now burst through the darkness again. Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted on our behalf once and for all so that there is no longer a curtain of separation between you and God. You can now come to God through Christ. And then Luke tells us with his final breath, Jesus shouts David's words from Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Y'all, any time we talk about pain and suffering, um, we have a temptation, we want to diminish it. We want to make it less than it really is, especially when it's the pain and suffering of someone else, when it's not something we feel. That's why we're so prone to give cliches and pat answers to pain. That's why we're so tempted always to say things like, God's got it. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Everything happens for a reason. You may find yourself, I may find myself saying things like that because it, it separates us from the reality. It diminishes the reality. But y'all, the truth is, cliches like that give no comfort to people who are really suffering. When there's, when there's real trauma, real grief and fear and failure and rejection and loss and despair, we don't need cliches. Those do us no good. That's why God, on his part, I said this before, God gives us no cliches. God offers no pat answers in the midst of our pain. What God gives us instead is himself. And this is the key to everything. What God gives us in our pain, it's not just helpful words. It's not good advice. God gives us himself. God sends to us his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, when Jesus came to the earth, he did not come as the son of God ought to come in our estimation. He did not come in a palace. He did not sit on a throne. He was not highly esteemed and well thought of and coddled and celebrated. Jesus is called the suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's how Jesus is described. He was in his life not coddled, but mocked and cursed and falsely accused. He was treated more unjustly than any person who's ever lived. He experienced starvation he experienced temptation, loss, and abandonment. His, his very best friends abandoned him at his greatest time of need. And then he was beaten and spit on and humiliated and then crucified. That is a shock to our system because nobody should be treated that way. Not even the worst of men and certainly not the perfect son of God. But you know what the, the craziest part of all that is? He volunteered. He chose it for himself. This was not Jesus uh, somehow unable to cope with the schemes of people and he just crumbled under the pressure and lost his life. No, this was God's divine choice. I, I mentioned this earlier at the beginning, that if suffering were a choice, none of us would ever choose it. It's sadistic to think otherwise, that we would enjoy pain, we'd go looking for pain. No! If suffering were voluntary, if pain were voluntary, nobody here would volunteer for it. Of course, life doesn't give us that option. Pain comes and finds us anyway. No one's exempt from it, right? But y'all, Jesus had a choice. He had a choice. He didn't have to endure what he endured. He didn't have to incarnate and become like us. He chose 
his fate. He chose to suffer for our sake so that in his suffering, by his death, he might ransom us. He might fulfill ultimately what David prays for temporarily in this psalm. That's why when Jesus speaks these words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, these are not words of defeat. He's not conceding defeat. He's not saying, God, I tried everything. I, I, I reached for every resource. They all failed me. So I guess now I'll throw up a Hail Mary here and hope that you'll come through for me. No. These are words of triumph. Our salvation has been accomplished. The curtain has been torn in two. And now Jesus can breathe his last. I think that's why from the cross, weakened though he was from the physical pain and torture... Jesus did not whimper these words. Luke says he shouted with a loud voice, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. These are words of victory. Not just victory for him, but for us. And so the question is, as we close, how can we really trust God? Even in the midst of the worst circumstances, when there's real pain and real trauma that no one else perhaps can even understand or touch, how can we trust God in the midst of that? How can we speak with confidence the words of a psalm like Psalm 31 when everything around us is falling apart? Because we have a God who chose to suffer for us. And in his suffering, he saves us. In his righteousness, he delivers us. I, I know what our natural assumption is. Our natural assumption says, if God loved me, he wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. We, we, think of, we think we're like God's pets, and surely he would coddle us and give us an easy life. If God loved me, he wouldn't let bad things happen to me. And that's why it's so hard for us sometimes to understand when we're facing trial, when we're facing difficulty. God, aren't you there? Don't you love me? But y'all, when the scripture defines the love of God, it doesn't give us a, a coddling kind of love, a two-dimensional kind of love. What the Bible actually says is, we know God's love by this, that he sent his only begotten son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how we know love. We don't know love by easy circumstances. We don't become faithful people in the easy times of life. We know love because Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf and in his righteousness, he delivers us. So where does our trust and our strength come from? It comes not from looking circumstantially and hoping that God will get me out. That's a fine thing to pray. Everybody in the scripture prayed it. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, God, let me, let me out of this hour if it's your will. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, get me out of here. But understand that even in the midst of our pain, that's not the promise. The promise is not God loves me and therefore he'll rescue me out of every bad thing. The promise is God loves me, and I know it because I see the Savior on the cross suffering for me. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Um, Father, I'll confess this morning that I struggle to believe all this. Um, there's so much pain in the world. There's so much pain that I've personally experienced. And 
it's, it's really, really hard to see purpose and grace and hope sometimes. And I pray, Lord, that we're able, all of us, just to be honest about that. That we don't have to pretend. We don't have to put on a churchy face and pretend like pain is, is somewhere out there, but, but we're, we're all fine. No, it touches all of us. And it tests our faith. It really does. It, it, it tests what we really believe. And I, and I pray this morning that for us, that we would, would have um, a, a deeper wisdom this morning because of your word, a deeper perspective, that, uh, that your goal for us, Lord, your, your love for us is not simply um, ease and comfort and good things. That, Lord, your love and your glory and your grace are, are expressed most deeply through suffering, through the suffering of Christ. And it's only by his suffering that we can know you and become your children and have access to you and spend eternity with you. And so, Father, would you encourage us this morning, even when these, these, this faith is, is, uh, doesn't make sense to us, these, these things are hard for us to, to compute, um, that, Lord, you, you don't give us cliches and pat answers. You don't pat us on the back and wish us well. Um, you entered in, and you took on a cross for us. Not so that we wouldn't suffer ourselves, but that, that through our suffering we would be made like Christ. And help us to see, Lord, that greater perspective. Uh, we will never come to these conclusions on our own. And so give us eyes of faith to see it. And Lord, encourage us when we find ourselves in pain to speak those words. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. In your righteousness, you deliver me. You are my rock and my refuge. And therefore, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Lord, in our, at our weakest place, show us, Lord, that you are abundantly strong and gracious through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.